All right, this hour, we're going to be discussing a comparison of counseling philosophies. So since this weekend started, every hour you have been... <laughs> You have been in the Bible, we've been talking about biblical principles, there's a lot of stuff to learn, and we've been trying to learn those things from the scriptures. Well, in this hour, we're going to be taking a different approach from the standpoint of we're going to be talking about what does the Bible teach, pardon me, not what does the Bible, what does the world system say, if we're if our goal is to not be like the world system, what does the world system say? And how are we supposed to understand counseling generally? In fact, let me add, say it a couple ways. The purpose of this lecture is for you to know enough about counseling philosophies, theories, and other theorists to make informed decisions like, is my counseling different from the guy down the street? <laughs> Or me. <coughs> Bill Pyatt, could you get me some water, if you don't mind? Is my counseling different from the guy down the street? And if so, how? All right, if, are you doing something when you sit down to minister to somebody? Are you doing something that's different from anyone else? <coughs> so that's the first question. Another one is, can I refer to other counselors, and if so, how and who? Right? So should you confer, refer, I should say, to other people? Thank you, sir. Uh, and who would that person be that you were going to refer to? Right? Just because somebody says they're a Christian counselor, is that a good idea? Or if they say they're not a Christian counselor, right? Do all you need is a counselor. Right? So how do we handle that? Here's the third one. How careful should I be when I'm cutting and pasting different ideas from different authors? Right? If it looks good on Pinterest, should I just put it on in there? Or is there a little bit more to know or a little bit more to think about as it relates to the world system? Reality is this, it says it there in your notes, reality is this, you and your counselee have possibly both been directly and indirectly influenced by psychology. <clears throat> the goal is to compare the primary counseling philosophies and contrast those with biblical counseling. So our hope is to talk about how do you understand the difference between the various ways we view people? Now, I just left my glasses in the other room on my desk, but if I had them in here, I would say, right, my glasses that I've worn twice today, it would be different than your glasses. Some of you might put mine on and say, wow, how do you see out of these things? Others of you might say, oh, that's about right. Those match just fine, and still others of you uh, would, would wonder why I even wear them. Right? I don't hardly need them, but it's helpful to have them on when I'm, when I'm looking at something small. So the lens in the glasses helps you see a particular thing. Well, depending on which perspective of psychology that you have, it influences the way you see. 
It influences what you understand. Right? It helps you make sense of things better. When I'm driving at night or if I'm watching a football game or coaching a football game or basketball even, I did call, I used to call basketball on the radio quite a bit and glasses would just make everything easier. The numbers were just more crisp. Everything, I could watch basketball and still can. Watch football, that's not a problem to watch it. But if I'm going to engage it, if I put on the right lens, it just makes it easier. Well, psychology is providing you a lens and their various lenses through which you view people and it begins to influence the way that you interpret what you see. Now, let's start with this, understanding the world of counseling philosophy. Number one, there is no single psychology Instead, we should speak of psychologies, right? There's not one. In fact, there are, in the world system, there are over 400 formal systems of psychology. Now, my wife, she flew yesterday morning early. She hit the 5.30 flight to Dallas and then on to Lubbock to go see her mom, and if Imagine if while I were driving her to the Springfield Airport, if we were Googling which of the 450 variations of air traffic control does Springfield use? And is it different than Dallas's? Right? None of us would get on a plane if every time you got on a plane, you had to make sure that your plane was on the same system of air traffic control as everybody else but when you go to a psychologist every psychologist thinks about and addresses people from their own perspective because they all come at it from a perspective they all come at it from a various lens so when somebody says well psychologists say they're not there isn't a psychologist Right? It's an individual, and that individual is either doing a good job or a poor job of, of articulating a particular view, but there are all kinds of views. You would define psychology this way. The scientific study of behavior and mental processes. The role of psychologists is to try to describe, predict, and explain human behavior and mental processes as well as helping to change and improve the lives of people and the world in which they live. That's according to the essentials of understanding psychology. Right, so the goal of a psychologist is to try to help you understand life. But there's not one of them, there's over 450 formal ones and there's all kinds of informal ones. Here's the second issue. All psychological theories and thus, counseling theories are driven by a person's worldview. This particularly is from Brent Slife, who is the editor of a great book called Taking Slides, Clashing Views on Psychological Issues. Now, it's important to understand what he's saying. He is saying that what the glasses, that's what we're going to use, the lens of the glasses that they wear, which we're going to call that their worldview, 
the theory that they support and propose comes from the particular lens that they're looking through. Listen to what he says. The first thing is there is descriptive data that refers to the observations of the observer. It describes what is seen, right? So when you're using descriptive data, you are looking at something and you're trying to describe it. Now, if you're looking through, if everybody can wear a different lens, do you think that the descriptive data may be impacted by that? Of course. Right? If you wear amber lens and somebody else is wearing polarized lens or someone else has a blue, the bluish tint type of lens to try to block the glare, no matter which lens you're looking through, it's going to impact what you see. So even with descriptive data, the observations made come from or through a particular lens. Now the second kind of data, we would call that prescriptive data. Here, it refers to the data as communicated after a worldview is applied or as a value is added because no data is neutral. Now, prescriptive data, it essentially is trying to make sense of what is seen in descriptive. So you describe something and then you determine something about that and now you begin to prescribe how to respond, what should you do, what should you think, or however that would apply. Notice, it's impossible to divorce a person's position from his biases and assumptions or his presuppositions. This is very important. This is what Brent Slife was talking about in his book, Taking Sides. Listen to what he says. Scientific findings are not only decided by data, the information produced by scientific research, but they are also decided by theoretical allegiances, industry loyalties, and philosophical assumptions that are not themselves driven or resolved by data. These allegiances and assumptions allow for and even spawn controversial issues. Indeed, they form what some call the disguised ideologies of science. That is, implicit worldviews or philosophies that guide what variables to select for research, what methods to use in these investigations, and what sense to make of the resulting data. Now that is a very insightful statement. Something to know about Brent's life, he is not a follower of Christ. He's not arguing against psychology. He's trying to describe how you can have hundreds of variations of psychology and how often they're at odds with each other. And he's saying the reason that's the case is because they've made theoretical allegiances, meaning they believe they think they know what's going on and they agree with somebody else on it and now they're trying to see that in the data. Their industry loyalties, probably one of the critical, most critical industry loyalty is to the drug companies, but there are others, and their philosophical assumptions 
And he's saying those allegiances and assumptions affect what people see when they make observations. Notice he continues. He says, to begin to understand why this is true, consider that any set of data is meaningless without some interpretive framework for that data. In other words, a researcher must add his or her own organization or interpretation to the data for the results of any study to be meaningful findings. Researchers will often claim to quote-unquote see meaning in their data, but this is not because the data inherently quote-unquote means something, but because the researcher already has an interpretive framework consciously or unconsciously for the data in mind. Now, I hope you understand the significance of what he's saying here. Again, I want to say it one more time. This is not someone who's against psychology. He is for it. He's in it. He's trying to help people understand why do people fight? Why are psychologists always at each other? And he's telling you it's because what they see is what they intend to see. What they see is impacted by what they want to see. What they see is impacted by what the study is trying to determine. So you put a framework of understanding on top of it. Notice this statement. Actually, he continues, the data interpretation is just one of many places where biases can creep into scientific research. Consider how researchers have all sorts of subjective choice points in their studies. First, what to study, that is, what variables are crucial. Second, how to study the variables or what oper operationalization and method designed to use. Third, how do you analyze the study or what assumptions are met and static statistics used? Fourth, what the statistical research really mean or what interpretation to use? And fifth, what limits the study has or what study problems might impede certain interpretations? Now catch this. These choice points mean that subjective factors such as allegiance are inevitably part of any research study. Now, I know that's a lot of quoting. I don't typically quote that much. Again, this is all out of Brent's life and his good book on taking sides, but it's critical for you to understand what he's saying. When you hear a psychologist say, this is what the data means, this is what we understand, what you're hearing is a belief system you're not hearing neutral data that every person would agree to or that you would just naturally determine as by observation. So data is never purely objective or neutral. The interpretation of the data is also seriously presuppositionally driven. Again, that's a very important to understand, and that's the second issue when you're thinking about psychology. The first issue is there's not one singular psychology, there are hundreds. 
The second is, and I turned my page so I don't know. Here's second. All psychological theories are driven by a person's presupposition. Here's number three. These competing schools in the field of psychology are divided into five major perspectives or categories in the field of psychology. Again, that's from, this is from a Psych 101 textbook, pages 18 and 19. They would divide those 400 plus formal systems into five main perspectives. Or in other words, if you look at the tree of psychology, when you get down to the root system, there's only major, five major roots that is driving all of the rest of it. What are they? The first one is neuroscience. That views behavior from the perspective of biological functioning, or in other words, you are your biology. So when you go to the doctor and they say, hey, take this pill, you'll be feeling better soon. That would be somebody driven by a neuroscience perspective, or at least influenced by it. Psychodynamic is the second one. Sometimes this is referred to as depth psychology. Freud would be the major proponent. It believes behavior is motivated by inner unconscious forces over which a person has little control. So people talk about a Freudian slip or they talk about dream analysis. That would all be part of the psychodynamic perspective. The third one would be behavioral, sometimes referred to as behavioralism. It focuses on observable behavior as the focus of the study and what kind of environment produces what kind of behavior. It, of course, is Skinner, is the primary proponent. Letter D is cognitive. It examines how people understand and think about the world around them and sub subsequently how thinking affects their behavior and then letter E is humanistic, sometimes referred to as third force psychology. Some people call this Rogerian. It contends that people can control their behavior and that they naturally try to reach their full potential. People desire to be in control of their lives and behavior, and through their free will, they try to reach their full potential. So there are five major perspectives. We're going to be talking about those the rest of our hour together. Now, with those five major perspectives, there's also five major conflicts. Right? This is where they don't agree with each other or where they fuss at each other. What are they? The number one is nature, heredity versus nurture or environment. Right, how much is a man's nature or how much is due to environment? How much is genetically determined versus how much is due to influences of the physical and social environment in which a child is raised? So that's nature versus nurture. You've probably heard the people talk about that before. That's every one of those perspectives of psychology takes a position on nature versus nurture. Here's another one. It's conscious versus unconscious cause of behavior. In other words, how much of 
what we do is conscious and how much of it is not. How much of what we do is, how much of our behavior yesterday is produced by forces of which we are fully aware and how much is due to unconscious activity, mental processes that are not accessible to the conscious mind. So is it conscious or unconscious? Why do you do what you do? Letter C, observable behavior versus internal mental processes. Should we study thinking or should we study only what we can see? Should we study what can be observed by outside observers or focus on unseen thinking processes? That's the third one. The fourth one is free will versus determinism. How much is free will in relationship to what a person does? And how much is out of our control? Or as it says here, how much is subject to determinism? And then number five, letter E, individual differences versus universal principles. How much of our how much of our personalities is unique and how much is from culture or universal principles? In other words, how much of our behavior is universally human, such as brain function, neurology, biology, or sex drive? Or how much of it is, is influenced by you as an individual or the place where you grew up? So that's what they're fighting over. Notice number five, then. The goal of all counseling theories or models is to help people. All models seek to make life better or more palatable for the client or counselee. We're not sitting here throwing rocks at psychologists and psychiatrists, even though fundamentally we disagree with them. In fact, you could say, well, I think it's driven by money. I think it's driven by power. You could say those things, but I'm going to suggest to you that when you work with people every day, and many of them are troubled people, most of the time what drives that isn't a love for money. Most of it is driven by a desire to help people. Right, so we don't want to question whether or not they have good motives, even though we fundamentally disagree with the lens they use to understand people and to understand problems. There are three basic approaches to helping people. The first one is secular psychology functions in an anti-God worldview or context. In other words... If you have a particular psychology that you ascribe to, that you would say, this is my view, if it is a worldly psychology, if it is driven by the world system, it's not simply neutral as it relates to God, it is anti-God. Freud, who is the father of modern psychology, said, we need secular priests we need to replace religion in the lives of people to make sense of what's going on in them and what's going on around them. And that's what secular psychology does. They hate God. They reject God. 
they are, in some ways, they are the voice of dissenting counsel that we talked about last week, last weekend, the last time we were together. They are no different than the serpent in the garden. They are trying to help you understand life without figuring God in it whatsoever. Right? It's an anti-God position. What's letter B? It's integrational psychology, which seeks to take elements of the scripture and add those to secular psychology. So integrational psychology would say, well, you know what? I agree with you. There's a lot of psychology that we just need to reject. So let's reject that part, but we're going to keep the rest, and then we're going to take the Bible and we're going to integrate those two into a new way of helping and viewing people. So they integrate psychology with the scripture. Again, just as I said in number five, we, would as we assume that their motive is pure. But whenever you take something that's true and God-honoring, and then you take something that's false and is anti-God... And you try to make those fit in the same system, something has to give. And what gives isn't the world system. It reminds me of that verse in Jeremiah, I think it's in chapter 2, where Jeremiah says, Have you ever seen the world give up their gods for what's not a god? But often, what do we do as Christians? We give up our god for what's not a god. I think integration essentially does that. Letter C, or you could have biblical counseling, which relies on the comprehensively sufficient, we addressed that last month, word of God to provide guidance for their counselees as it relates to living for the glory of God in the midst of pressure-filled circumstances. So... Those are the three ways. Number seven in your notes then. How do you see and use the Bible? This is some of the issues that we've been discussing in track two this weekend. I think Brother Pyatt was talking about this yesterday in the other area. Right? General revelation declares the, glo <laughs> pardon me, the glory of God. That is, God's eternal power and deity to all people everywhere. Be when you interact with creation, when the sun comes up, when you see the moon, right? I think there's a bunch of articles this week prepping us for two months from now. I think it's in April. On a Monday, we're going to have a full eclipse in the state of Missouri. Well, no one will look at that full eclipse without hearing general revelation. Because in the moment of seeing, they also hear a language that is a language at the heart. It's God's language. It's called the glory of God. It's what creation declares. It speaks every language. There isn't a person who's ever lived since Adam and Eve who have not heard it. But according to Romans chapter 1, in the moment of hearing it, the world rejects it. That's general revelation. Again, the key text there would be Romans 19 and Romans 1. 
there's also special revelation. Special revelation, we understand that in today's age, as from the Bible, it declares Jesus Christ to those who come in contact with the Word of God. So special revelation tells you about sin, it tells you about the cross, it tells you about Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That would be special revelation. Both are revelation from God to man. That means that we only know that God exists through general revelation and specifically that salvation is only in Jesus Christ from special revelation. We only know that because God revealed it. It's impossible to know in any other setting. So that's why we can have confidence in that truth because God is the one who provided that truth. God is the one who said those things, one, specifically through special revelation, additionally through general revelation. Again, sun, moon, stars, the world around us as we interact with that. General revelation is to all people. Right? So the sun, the moon, the stars, as you go outside and you look around and you see the beauty of what God's given us, every person in the world engages that and every person in the world receives it. That's why it's called general revelation. It's generally to all people everywhere, no matter where they exist or when they have existed. Special revelation, or sometimes we call it specific revelation, is to anyone who receives the Word of God. Because this revelation, it has to come from the Scriptures and specifically its detail in relationship to everything from our origin to our future. So that is specific revelation. God's word is truth and has ultimate authority over all of our lives. All other truth claims fail both at the observation level and the authority level. In other words, the only thing that you can base your life on that you know is true is God's word. And the only way we know it's true is because of its own testimony from God that the Holy Spirit convinces our heart to believe. So that is God's word is what ultimately is truth. So if God's word is truth, then how do we assess? How do we figure out these other various ways of competing theories? Let me give you six guidelines for evaluating various theories. The first one is, how do they propose to know what they know? We call that epistemology. When someone says, this is what I know, the question of philosophies that says, how do you know that? That's an epistemological question. How did you get there? Right? There's four primary answers. The first one is intuition. Some people just know something is true, right? I don't need proof 
I don't need reason support. That's not necessary. I don't feel good about your decision. My intuitive, my intuitive self, my intuition says this is what's right and you'll never convince me otherwise. A lot of people function out of intuition. Right? If you read or listen to much, they talk about a mother's intuition, her sixth sense. Right? But that's all still part of intuition. The other one, second, would be reason. Now, every person uses reason. We call that logic. But some people base all of their decisions, all the way they view the world, they base that upon their own capacity to reason. You know, they just say, well, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. And so they go about living based on what they think. What they think then becomes their primary focus. Letter C, empiricism. Empiricism is truth, quote unquote, proven, informed by observations observable data, past experience. The PowerPoint and your notes, I think, are a little bit different here. But basically, it's called the scientific method. Right? If you say, this is what's true, and then somebody's going to say, well, how do you know that's what's true? And they say, well, because I tested it. Right? We had these particular results from these various observations. You develop a hypothesis, you test it through observable and repeatable tests, and then you come up with a particular solution. So empiricism. And the last one would be divine revelation. That is, the highest authority that sets the parameters of the discussion is the word of God. The scriptures, John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In Psalm 19, verse 7, right, it identifies God's word as truth. If we were to go on a quick we were going on a quick field trip today and say, you know, I'm just wondering, should you discipline a child? Right? Do you believe in child discipline? If you've been paying attention in the Springfield school board race, there is a big fight right now over one of the candidates in Springfield took out his former principal's paddle and said, we need to bring this back into the classroom, right? So there's one of the candidates for Springfield Public Schools that is making his claim, and he wants people to vote for him because he believes in corporal punishment. So if we were to say, well, if we were to run down here to Walmart or run up there to Springfield to Walmart and just ask, well, should we spank people in public school? One person that goes by intuition, says, I just don't feel good about it. So no, I don't think you should do it. it another person, by reason, is just going to say, it just doesn't make good sense to me. I don't understand 
how you can say beating a kid is going to help them do what you want them to do. So, no, I don't think you should. Somebody who's driven by empirical evidence or empiricism is going to say, well, tests show that you're eight times more likely to be an axe murderer if you were disciplined at home through spanking. Right, so some test will prove their answer. And you might find somebody from some good church there that says, well, you know what Proverbs says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So the question is, who has authority? What has authority? That's what we're talking about. So the first question we're going to ask when we're evaluating theories of psychology is this question. How do they propose to know what they know? That's number one. Here's number two. How do they explain who and what is man? How do they explain who and what is man? This is an important question as well. What does the theorist teach about man's motives, his, comp his composition, the effect of the environment on him, or what makes him tick? Right? Your view of man will determine your counseling theory and your counseling practice. So we're interested in questions about all of those things. What do you say the origin of man is? How do you determine what is normal and abnormal? What is your standard for making those determinations? So that's what we call anthropology. So the first question is, how do you suppose to know what you know? The second question is, how do you explain who and what is man? Here's question three. Considering man's problems, how is the problem defined? Is it generally blamed on some force outside the counselee? Is it something in the past? Is, has there been some unmet need? Is there something physical that needs to take place? What standard is used to determine how you qualify the problem? How seriously is the problem taken? Right? All of those questions get to essentially what's going on here with the problem and how do I understand it? Number four, well, how is the problem solved? Should the problem be solved? Can the problem be solved? What standard or norm is used to determine the solution? Is it man's reasoning and his observation? Or is it Bible principles using good hermeneutics? Or is it some combination of what the Bible teaches and what man can come up with? What motives are accepted or not accepted? What steps are recommended? When counseling is over, does the counselee consider the problem to be more or less severe than when he came in? Is the counselee told to take responsibility? Those are all questions that relate to how you solve the problem. 
Number five, what's the goal of counseling? What product is the counseling intended to produce? Is it to get rid of the problem? Or is it to feel better and be more comfortable with the problem? Be better able to cope? Be in better control? Like yourself better? Feel accepted? What does the counseling look like? What does the counseling process look like? What do you want to accomplish? Is your desire to glorify God like becoming, by becoming, pardon me, like Jesus Christ? So what is the goal of counseling? Here's the sixth one. What is the role of the counselor? Is he an expert? Is he an authority? Is he a friend? Is he a brother? Is he someone who comes beside you and practices the one another? Or is he a professional that is helping you understand life? Well, that's a lot of questions, isn't it? How do we figure out the differences between these various systems? Well, let's take a stab at it. Let's talk through the six on page 125 in your notes. It's intentionally blank because on 126 and 127, it should come across as a big, basically a big spreadsheet covering six different philosophers. We're just going to bump through them real quick. We'll start with neuroscience. Santiago Ramoni Cajal is the one, the Spanish Nobel Prize winner, who came up with the anatomy of the neuron. Right? So he was the one that proposed there are neuronal firings in these individual neurons and the way they interact with each other is the way that people think and the way that people engage and the, what, how people make sense of things around them. So that was the early underpinnings of the neuroscience perspective. Well, let's ask the questions that we've been talking about. Who and what is man? Well, in neuroscience, man is essentially their biology. Right? They're an evolutionary being, or essentially, we're nothing more than an animal. Well, how would you define the problem? They would say that the problem is a chemical problem or a biological problem. So you come in and you say, well, I'm depressed. And they would say, well, that, your chemicals have done this. So what? They're going to give you a chemical to adjust the chemical makeup in your body. We'll talk about the details of that next month in our weekend conversation. Number four, how's the problem solved? Well, you change the chemicals and you adjust the biology. Right? How many times have you been around a child where a grandparent, especially, sometimes a parent comes in and says, oh, forgive Johnny, I bet he's just been a handful today. We forgot to give him his medicine this morning. Right? What, is, what is the issue? Well, the medicine, you give it to him, it corrects his biological problem, therefore he can sit in class and not be driven by his ADD or ADHD. Right, that would all be part of neuroscience. So if you change the chemicals, you adjust the biology. If you adjust the biology, then what? You've adjusted the person. What is the goal of counseling? Well, the goal of counseling is for you to accept your biology. 
right? And ultimately, you want other people to accept your biology as well, right? Accept your diagnosis. And you can change it then with drugs. So get on drugs, stay on drugs, and you'll be better. You'll be normal. Well, what is normal? Well, that's a good question. Who then, what is the role of the counselor? The role of the counselor here is a biologist or a medical doctor. Could be a psychiatrist, but it's someone that can adjust your biology. What are some of the implications then for counseling? Well, number one, this is critical, the counselee is not responsible. What's the problem? The problem is the biology. My body fails me. So I must accept who I am, take my medicine, and I'll be better. My problem is a medical issue similar to an illness. What about for the church? Well, I have two things listed there for you. Many in the church are on psychotherapeutic drugs. Right? You don't want to stand up in a church congregation at any time and think for one moment that maybe not up to 50% of a congregation is on some kind of medicine. And I don't mean blood pressure medicine. I'm talking about uh, psychotics. The psychotherapeutic drugs, I should probably say. Right, so many, many, many people in the church are on drugs. Often in the church, many refer to sin as illness or a disease. They do that because they believe that the, Ill the sin is caused by some kind of biological functioning. Okay, second one then is psychodynamic. Who is that? It's Sigmund Freud. Let's ask the same questions. Well, Sigmund, who or what is man? He would say, well, man is an instinctual animal. He's got these instinctual drives. Adler, Carl Jung, and others are also part of this one. Right? Human nature, he would say, is deterministic. The personality is structured around these three major processes, the id, the superego, and the ego. Right? The id is the spoiled brat of your personality. Right? It wants what it wants. And then it has these problems with the superego. There's a conflict between the id and the superego. And that conflict takes place around the ego. Third, th number four, there's consciousness Looks like we have three, two threes on your notes, but there's a consciousness and unconscious. Right, the issue there is how much do you understand, how much are you consciously aware of, and what are you not consciously aware of? Right, that's where people would say a Freudian slip. They said, oh, you said that because that must be what you're thinking about in your, right, in your unconscious. That's where that comes from. How's the problem defined? I said it a minute ago. There's a conflict between the id and the superego. One wants to express itself, and the other says, no, you can't express yourself. You'll feel guilt. You start to begin to feel guilt because you can't express yourself. How do you solve the problem with psychoanalysis and psychotherapy? 
Right? You lay on the couch and you talk. You do a... You do an expedition into your past, right? A psychological expedition. You determine where the conflict comes from between the id and the superego. What's the goal of counseling? Well, the goal of counseling is to get rid of guilt, and again, they call this false guilt, by shifting blame and labeling guilt as false. The goal is to weaken the superego. Right? Because the superego has been influenced by culture, it's been influenced by parents, it's been influenced by the church. So you want to weaken the superego so that your id can do what it wants to do. It's kind of like the Tasmanian devil of your soul. It wants to do everything and here's the ego keeping it from doing what it wants to do because the superego has bought into all the lies in society that says you can or cannot do certain things. Well, what role do you have with the counselor? The counselor's an expert. What are implications for counseling? The counselee is not responsible, right? The problem is whoever it is that's influencing the superego. You need an expert to help you. There's no cure, only progression or stability. And in the church, or for the church, the church is not important and religion is viewed as harmful. And we want to be careful the advice we share with each other in the church, because sometimes it's just pure psychodynamic advice. Corbin will turn a teenager this year. He came along several years after the rest of our children. And so I had a good friend who lives now in Indiana and he told me when Corbin was born, he said, now, Brother Kevin, it's been a long time since you have an infant. Don't forget, when you change the infant's diaper, don't say, shoo-wee, or don't act like there's anything weird. Because that will imprint him. And he'll grow up feeling like there's something wrong with his... Um, with him, I would, as his, with him sexually, it's probably the best way to say it. What was my friend doing? He was giving me advice, but it was straight out of Freud. Right? So it was a Christian man trying to love me, giving me advice that was straight from Sigmund Freud. All right, what about behaviorism? B.F. Skinner's our man. You say, who is man? Well, he's a conditioned animal. Right, so we would say deterministic. Only, uh, what do we have next? He would say a person is born like a blank computer card. There's no internal programming whatsoever. So everything you interact with, it helps write that program. So you're not a free agent. You are a product of your environment. Your environment has produced behavior that's unacceptable. I thought we went to 310. We, it says 305 here, so I wasn't paying close attention. Let me work through a few of these. We will go to 310, but not because we intended to. Or it is because we intended to. So what's the goal? The goal is to change the standard. What's the role of counseling? It's to be a technician. 
right? You need to know what to change in the environment to get the thing that you want produced. What are some of the implications? Well, the counselee, again, is not responsible because their behavior is determined by their environment. Only the behavior is subject to examination. It alone can be observed and measured. And for the church, understanding, reconditioning, and restructuring is important. A lot of what we do is behaviorism. A lot of biblical counseling is a veneer for behaviorism. We just try to tell people to act different in a particular environment so they get a particular response. So we want to be careful the advice that we give. What about cognitive theory? Well, they would say that man is a meaning maker. That man processes information similar to a computer. And when somebody has a hard time in their brain, you call that cognitive distortion. In other words, this is a word that used to float around a lot. This person has dysfunctional thinking. Sometimes you would call it they have exaggerated or automatic thinking. They can't control what they think. They misconstrue experiences. So the problem is all in the head. The problem is in the way that the mind works. So then how do you fix that? Well, you need to give them cognitive restructuring. It's a process where you teach them to examine their thoughts, catch and correct thinking that's poor, re-educate them on thinking the way that you should think, and to begin to practice to use one's observing self. And the observing self essentially is you take a step outside of yourself, observe your thinking process, catch the places where you're thinking wrong, correct that, and then you function differently. So the goal of counseling is to change thinking or to change behavior, which thus then changes behavior. The role of the counselor is a coach or a teammate. It's a collaborative effort. And similar to the other four, counseling is not, counseling is not responsible due to a malfunction of the thinking process. With the right amount of effort, encouragement, study, and discernment, thinking can change. And for the church, we have to be careful that we do not think change is simply a matter of changing one's mind. And when you add this with other theories, you get cognitive behavioral therapy. Again, as biblical counselors, we have to be aware of that. What about Carl Rogers and what we call humanism or humanistic psychology? He would say man is unique in himself and basically is good. His potential is within and he matures like a flower. So when someone isn't doing what they should do, he would say the social environment interfered with his ability to realize his potential. So you solve that through non-directive or client-centered therapy. There's a focus, a heavy focus on feelings and attitudes. You say, well, how did you feel? What did that make you feel like? The solution to the problem is always within someone. Your goal is to help someone be comfortable with self. As the counselor, you are a mirror. Someone says something and you do stuff like, oh, hmm, interesting. 
So what you're saying is, and you repeat back what they said to them, and when they hear you repeat like a mirror what they were saying, it gives them internal insight. And as they have internal insight, then they can change. So the counselee is not responsible since his social environment impeding his inherent potential. Value, judgment, and directions are based on the, and the ba judgments based on those are not acceptable. So as a counselee, you would never tell somebody that's wrong. You would just repeat back what they said in the hope of them getting internal insight. So for the church, the implications, these are serious ones. You back away from biblical instruction and robust wisdom. And you miss a good, loving, biblical view of change. Now, a lot of times in this system, you say, oh, well, all I am is a sounding board. If I've heard one Christian say that, I've heard 150. I'm just a sounding board. Well, then you're just Rogerian. Right? You don't know what you're saying. Uh, we want to be more than sounding boards. We want to be people that are full of love and truth and wisdom. What about biblical counseling? Well, God is the one who just started that one. Man is created in the image of God in order to honor him. Man is rational and morally responsible. In every one of these systems, this is the first one that says man is responsible. What is the problem? Well, he's a fallen image bearer by nature and a sinner by choice. And the guilt that he feels is real. How's the problem solved? Well, initially, justification. Then the goal is to work through progressive sanctification. You say, what's the goal of counseling? To help someone to live in the spirit through the word. What do we call this person? We call him a biblical counselor, a spiritual friend, a nuthetic counselor, a brother, a sister, a mentor. What are some implications? Well, the counselee is responsible. Guilt is taken seriously. Counseling is God-oriented. And for the church, biblical counseling isn't a program. It's life in the church. It's what we talked about last time. It's the real answer for others. And it's the only system, really, to deal with the true problem of mankind. So then in final statements, there's eight of them here on page 128. Our survey is not exhausted, <coughs> but you can see how they contrast with each other. Biblical counseling ought to grow out of a biblical view of man. Biblical counseling ought to grow out of a biblical view of man. All counseling is God-oriented. You can't talk to someone without thinking about God, because all of life is in relationship to God. Guilt is taken seriously. When somebody says they're guilty, we, that's something we need to talk about. Responsibility of the counselee is recognized, because we're responsible before God. Behavioral change is possible and it can occur now through the power of the spirit counselee is accepted as a person god created we're thankful to work with individuals biblical counseling is the only system of counseling that offers real hope of change 
and apparent similarities between biblical counseling and other methods does not justify the use of those methods. Right? We may refer someone to a medical professional, but that doesn't mean we believe that people are biology. We may ask a question about someone's past, but it doesn't mean we're Freudian. We maybe help somebody deal with stress, but that doesn't mean we believe there's a conflict between the id and the superego. We may modify behavior, tell somebody to put something off or put something on, but that doesn't mean we buy behaviorism. We may work on habits, again, but it doesn't mean we're a behaviorist. We may certainly try to restructure somebody's thinking, but it's not because they have dysfunctional thinking, it's because thinking reflects the heart. We do listen, but it's not because we're humanistic, it's because we want to be wise. And we ask questions because, again, we want to be wise. So just because we do certain things other people do, it does not mean we accept their philosophies. You should begin to see that scriptures are totally sufficient, comprehensively sufficient for counseling. Lord, please give us this kind of wisdom as we seek to walk in your word humbly. In Jesus' name, amen.